Father, we're so grateful we can call you Father. And we gather as your people this day to celebrate this, uh, this day of resurrection. To celebrate, Lord, the fact that you gave your Son to the death of the cross. And by his resurrection, you've delivered us from the power of the enemy. Praise you, God. That truth empowers us to kill sin in our lives. And Father, may we die to sin every day. Every single day that we may be able to live a joy-filled lives for your glory and for your honor. We pray too, Father, that you would bless your church. Do you bless our service to each other? You bless our service to this community. You bless the tithes and offerings that we give to, and multiply them for your purposes. You, you bless our proclamation of the gospel. God, send your blessing on your church this day. And may we do all that we do for your glory. There are those in our fellowship, Father, who are sick uh, at home or in the hospital. We have those who are homebound. They want to be here with us today, but they can't. So we pray, Father, that you might minister to them, minister to their spirits, and guide them. We pray, too, Father, for uh, our soldiers around the world on this Easter Sunday who are away from home and serving to protect us. We pray, too, for the soldiers of Christ, our missionaries who are around the world, Lord, some in very dangerous places. And we pray that you would embolden them and empower them today as they worship you, as they serve the people where you sent them. Then we pray for our pastor today as he proclaims the gospel. Fill him with your spirit. God, do a work in and through him. Speak to us the message that you have for us today. And we pray this in the name of the one who lives forever and ever and ever, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John chapter 11, we will look this morning at an episode in the life of Jesus, John chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. Now, I know if you are a regular person who comes to worship at Grace on the Ashley, you know that's impossible, 44 verses in one sermon. Let me say up front, the, uh, the point this morning is not to deal with all the intricacies of this text. Uh, we're working our way through the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings, and uh, eventually we'll make it to chapter 11, and we'll deal with all the intricacies of the text. But what I want to do this morning 
uh, is I want us to walk through this text, walk through this episode in the life of Jesus, and, and, and sort of just hit the highlights and, and get the full scope of, of what's going on and then connect it to what we celebrate this morning on Easter Sunday. So that's what we're after. Maybe we should begin by just hitting the climactic passage in this chapter. In chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, Jesus proclaims something absolutely remarkable in the middle of the story. He says in John chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, to a woman named Martha, these words. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked her, do you believe this? This one statement that Jesus makes to this woman in in the context of this story encapsulates for us really the message of Easter. It encapsulates really for us the, the baseline question that forms the heart of what Christianity is. The bottom line truth that there there is a way to die and yet still live. That there is a way to live and yet never die. It's a remarkable truth. It's an incredible truth. It's a truth that's illustrated by what Jesus did on the first Easter morning, rising from the dead. And Jesus discloses this truth well before his resurrection. He discloses it here clearly in the context of a funeral, in the context of a grave that's not empty, a grave that holds a body. And it's right in the midst of a, of a context of death that Jesus begins to talk about life. And that's what I want you to see this morning. It, it introduces to us a context and a theme of death. And, and I know death isn't very pleasant to talk about, is it? Um, death, I mean, how many of you sit around the table with your friends? You know, you invite some folks over for dinner on Friday night. Everyone's around the table and it kind of goes like this. Boy, that's some great, uh, some great chicken you've cooked there. Uh, what do you think about death? It's about how it goes, right? No, it never goes that way, right? We never talk about death. We never, if we can help it, think about death. We live our lives in such a way that we, in a very practical sort of a way, deny the reality of death altogether. Why? Because, because death frightens us. It's one of the most frightening realities that human beings face is this, the, the, the idea that one day our lives are going to come to an end and we are going to die and everything that we know in our human existence is going to come to an abrupt end of some sort. Usually thinking about that and talking about that strikes fear in the heart of people. Fear because in many cases, depending on the person, they don't know what lies beyond death. They don't know what death is going to be like. They don't know what sort of way death is going to come to them. So they're afraid. But death is a reality of life. Around the world, statistics tell us that every single day, 146,357 people die. Every day, 146,000 people die. Every hour, about the time it's going to take for you to listen to this sermon, hint, that's a preview, 6,098 people will die. We pray that none of them are in here today. 
you want to narrow it down to the United States where we live, 2.4 million people die every year. 6,000 people die every day. 6,700 to be exact. Death comes and death is a reality and we like to deny it. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about it because it in general typically generates fear in us. But death is a reality that we have to face. Every human being has got to face the reality of death at some point in their life. If not before, you'll face it when it comes. Death is a great equalizer. James Shirley said this, the glories of our blood and state our shadows. That is to say, all the good things about us are just an illusion. They're not substantial things, he says. There is no armor against fate. Death lays its icy hand upon kings. Scepter and crown must tumble down and in the dust be equal laid with poor, crooked, scythe and spade. Kings and commoners. Death finds them all. It's true, isn't it? It doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are, you'll die. It doesn't matter how educated or uneducated you are, one day you'll die. It doesn't matter how popular you are in your culture or how unpopular you are. At some point in the, in the, in, in the timeline of your life, you will die. You will face death. Death equalizes everybody. Everybody will die. Now, in our, in our culture and in many cultures, really most... Fear is what's generated with the idea of death. When you, when you look at some of the, the things that are said at the end of life by those who have largely rejected Christ and rejected what the Bible has to say on this topic, you find uh, permeating their, their words often fear. Cesar Borgia said this at the end of his life, it's reported. He said, while I lived, I provided for everything but death. And now I must die. And I'm unprepared to die. Thomas Hobbes, political philosopher, said this, it's reported. He said, I say again, if I had the whole world at my disposal, I would give it all to live one more day. I'm about to take a leap into the dark. It's reported that Voltaire, the famous anti-Christian atheist, said this near the end of his life. I'm abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I'm worth if you'll give me six months of life. Then I shall die and go to hell. The last words of many people just drip with this idea that when death comes, it's a fearful thing. And we know that, and so we do everything we can to, to, to sort of postpone death, to kind of insulate ourselves from the reality of it. And we have lots of means in our culture for doing that, right? We have doctors, and we have medicines, and we have surgeries, and we have all sorts of means at our disposal, right, to, to push off death. We get sick, and what do you do? You don't instantly think, oh my goodness, I have a cough today, I'm going to die, right? You think what? I'll just go to the doctor. And what do you expect to happen there? You can answer, man. I know you're awake. Um, you, you expect him to do what? Well, to look at you and to, you know, make you open up your mouth and go, ah, you know, and he looks around and he pokes at you. And he says, oh, here's the problem. And then he writes you a prescription and you go to the pharmacy and you, you get a medication and you take it. And what happens? Well, you don't die. You get better. That's a common experience in our lives, isn't it? 
we go and we get better. There's doctors and there's medicines. And we have all of these means for staving off death. Um, bad things happen to us. And we can, we can go to specialists who can put us completely to sleep where we feel absolutely nothing. Cut us open and take out bad things so that we don't, what? So we don't die. We have all sorts of means to postpone it and to insulate ourselves from it. But it doesn't change the reality that every single one of us one day, something will happen that no doctor can fix. That no surgeon can operate and remove. That no medication can make go away. Something will happen to every single one of us one day. We will die. And that time will come and there's nothing we can do to stop it. The popular culture in which we live has no answer for death. So it chooses various tactics to try and deal with it. Uh, In some cases, the culture just laughs at death, right? We make a joke of it. It's just something to laugh at. You know, we laugh at it because in laughing at it, it somehow helps us with our fear. We're not laughing at it. We're entertained by it. So we make movies about death that glorify death. And we're entertained by watching people die and be killed. Somehow by being entertained by it, It insulates us from the reality of it. And in many cases, people just shrug it off. Ah, death, whatever. Until the day comes when they have no choice but to face it. Typically, it's not until we either go to a funeral or we face our own death that we have to look death in the face and deal with it. And it's in that very kind of a context that we find ourselves in John chapter 11. Death has occurred. A man has died. His body has been put into a a stone grave. And the context is a funeral setting. He's been in there for several days. And all of the people who know him and loved him and and were, were connected to him via life are around. And they're grieving like anybody would be at the funeral of somebody that they love dearly. They're crying. They're weeping. Grief is heavy in the air. And that's the context to which we find John chapter 11. But before we dive into the text, I want to say this. Although the culture laughs at death or is entertained by death or simply shrugs death off, the Bible is not naive to death. In fact, the Bible explains death better than any explanation you could find anywhere else. The Bible tells us where death came from. All the way back in the book of Genesis, and it's worth our time to go back there for just a moment to see this. Where did death come from? How did it enter human experience? Because that's going to help us to know what needs to be done to remedy it. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, and you can flip there in your Bible, or if you just don't want to go through that exercise, you can look on the screen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The context is creation. God has created human beings. And he's placed them in the Garden of Eden. And the Bible tells us, The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, what's going to happen? You shall surely die. He says to man, he says, look, here, I've given you everything you need and I've given you free reign and you've got free reign over everything. There is one commandment and that is do not eat from this tree. If you do, there's a consequence and the consequence is going to be what? Death. Death is going to enter your experience. It's clear that death wasn't a part of the experience before. But if if this man chooses to rebel against God, to rebel against the one thing God has called him not to do, Death will enter the scene. 
Verse 4 of chapter 3, another, another player enters the scene, the Garden of Eden. Satan, in the form of a serpent, says to the woman, Oh, you will not what? You won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So here comes the liar who comes along and he says, Oh, no, no, God's got it all wrong. If you disobey God, if you rebel against God, you won't die. Death won't enter your experience. In fact, what will happen is you'll become like him. So God wants to keep you under his thumb. He doesn't want you to be like him. So he's given you this made up rule. It's really no big deal. Well, you know the story, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And you know what happened? Death entered the human experience. It's at this point, at the very point of mankind's rebellion against his creator, that death enters the scene. And God doles out his judgment in the, in the following verses. We get down to verse 19, and God makes it clear that what he promised was coming true. He says to Adam, by the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to what? And to dust you'll return. Adam... Just what I told you would happen is going to happen. You will die. You're going to die. Death is now going to enter into the picture of your experience. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul makes clear to us that Adam's sin and the resulting death that came into his life has plagued all of humanity ever since then. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says it this way, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... So what? Death is spread to all men. Why? Because all have sinned. The epidemic epidemic that started in the garden has been caught by every human being ever since. And sin and death are the enemies that plague us. And they have since the very beginning. And right at the very beginning, in verse uh, chapter 3, verse 21 of Genesis, it tells us the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. Instantly, death very realistically enters the picture. An animal is killed, and its skin is used to cover up the, the new shame of Adam and Eve. And so right here at the beginning, it's not that Adam instantly dies, but a death quickly occurs. And sin and death go hand in hand. And sin and death are the enemies of humanity. And as you weave your way through the Old Testament, these two enemies are like a dark cloud that just hangs over humanity. You follow the line through all of the wars and through all of the the deaths and through all of the diseases and through all of the, the various ramifications of this throughout the Old Testament. And you get all the way to the New Testament, to John chapter 11, and death is still the cloud hanging over humanity's head. And sin is still a problem. And there's a very real man by the name of Lazarus who's laying in a tomb because of it. And yet, just as all throughout the Old Testament we see this cloud of sin and death, we also see a thread that God is going to, re- is going to resolve that problem. He's going to resolve it. All throughout the Old Testament is this promise, you have earned death by your sin, but I am going to send a Redeemer. I'm going to send someone who can do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Deal with these two enemies, sin and death. And when we get to John chapter 11, we come face to face with this Savior. 
It's Jesus Christ. So look with me at John chapter 11. And let's just skim through this, this story, this, this narrative that we have here. And, and let's just pull it together with how it relates to Easter. As we read through this, I want to point out to you something that I think is interesting. There are several perplexing statements that pop up throughout the narrative. Some things that I call them head scratchers, okay? Because when I read them, it just makes me kind of scratch my head and go, what is that about? I don't get it. So I'm going to try and point those out to you. And then when we get to the climax of the story, it's going to make the head scratchers all make sense, okay? So trek with me, if you will, if you're not too hot and sleepy or full of donuts or coffee or whatever at this point to do so. Uh, and we pray that the glory of Christ would, would be revealed to us as we do this. So, so walk with me through this text. We're introduced at the very beginning to the setting. In verse 1 of chapter 11, John records for us this. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who had anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified. So here's the first little chunk that John gives us. And there are a couple of things that we can point out here. It's clear that John expects his readers to know who these people are because he reports to us, this is Lazarus who's dead, uh, his Mary and Martha, you all should know them because this is the Mary who's going to wipe Jesus' feet with her, with her hair and oil and anoint his feet in this beautiful sort of a ceremony. He expects that his readers already know that from reading the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You say, how do you know that? Because John doesn't report that incident until chapter 12, the next chapter. So John hasn't spoken of this incident yet, but he expects that they know it. So John was the latest of the, of the, uh, of the, of the New Testament um, Gospels, And so it's clear that he expects his readers to know who Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are. And he tells us what's happened. Lazarus has died. And, and, and in the midst of that, Mary and Martha are devastated, as anyone would be devastated, at someone they love has died. And so they, they send word to Jesus. And the word is simply this. Lazarus is ill. The one whom you love is ill. And so the word comes to Jesus in another town, probably about a 10-hour walk away. And the word comes to Jesus, the one whom you love is ill. And Jesus knows who they're talking about. This is Lazarus who's ill. Lazarus, his friend. This is not any old stranger. This is someone who Jesus knew very, very closely. It's someone who, by the very invitation here, is identified as somebody that Jesus loved. It's somebody he cared very, very deeply about it. And so Jesus gets the word, this guy that you love, this dear, dear friend of yours, he's ill. And the idea is that he's gravely ill, not that he has a cold. He's, he's dying. He's dying. It's grave. It's serious. So how's Jesus going to respond? And here we get the first head-scratcher. He says this. Jesus responds this way. This illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God. What? What does that mean? Lazarus is ill. He's going to die. And Jesus responds, not with any panic, not with racing off to help, but just simply saying, oh, no. This illness won't lead to death. Now, it's interesting that he says this illness won't lead to death because we know, and you probably know if you know the story, what happens to Lazarus? He dies. 
So this is a head-scratcher. In fact, if we get the timeline right, Lazarus is probably dead by the time the word gets to Jesus already. But Jesus says, there's some sort of a way that this illness that Lazarus has is not ultimately going to lead to death. Instead, something else is at stake here, the glory of God. Somehow the glory of God's going to be in the picture here. And it doesn't make sense now, but it will in a moment. What is the glory of God? We need to define that's one of those terms that we kind of throw around and use, but we don't always know exactly what it means. If I were to ask you, what is the glory of God? What would you say? That's exactly what I thought you would say. I don't know. Listen, the glory of God is one of those words that's kind of hard to, hard to describe, but we could kind of summarize it by saying that the glory of God is the outward expression of all that is a part of God's character. The outward expression of everything that God is, His goodness, His grace, His love, His justice, His power, His, his majesty, His holiness, the, the visible expression of all of that is the glory of God. John Piper says it this way, God's glory is the outward radiance of the intrinsic beauty and greatness of His manifold perfections. Well, that's kind of wordy, isn't it? But it's another way of saying everything that makes God perfect and great. The, the expression of that is the glory of God. So Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death, but this illness is going to serve another purpose, the glory of God. All right, we got that. So head scratcher number one. Somehow Lazarus' death is not going to lead to death, and somehow the glory of God is going to be revealed. So let's move on. Verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So once again, we get another, another indication that these are not just strangers, but once again it's repeated that Jesus did what with these folks? He, how did he feel about them? He loved them. He loved them deeply. And it's not a general, it's a very sort of specific love. He had a particular love for these people. And then John tells us, because he loved them, so he stays two days longer where he was. Head scratcher number two, right? How is this possible? Jesus loves them, and because he loves him, because he loves Lazarus, because he loves Mary and Martha, he stays right where he is for two more days. Now that doesn't seem to make sense, does it? Now think about this. You get the word that somebody you love is gravely ill and you can do something perhaps to help. What is the first thing you do? Well, you hop in your car or in the first century, your horse or chariot or feet or whatever, and you race to their side, don't you? Why? Because you love them and you don't want them to die. And if they're going to die, you at least want to be there before they die. So love motivates you to go instantly. But apparently not Jesus. Here we're told by John, he loves them. And because he loves them, he doesn't go. He stays for two days right where he is. Because Jesus loves Lazarus, he lets him die. Because Jesus loves Lazarus, he lets his body be put into a grave and stay there for four days. Because he loves Martha and Mary, because he loves them, he lets them watch their brother die. And he lets them endure the deepest of griefs and sadness and sorrow for several days. And that brings up a question. How is it loving for Jesus to do this? How is that the love of Jesus to not go? It's a head scratcher. 
Verses 7 through 10 simply tell us about a conversation between Jesus and his disciples where he says, all right, we need to go on down to Bethany after a couple of days. And they're saying, no, you don't want to go there because you might get arrested and killed. And they have this conversation, but Jesus determines we're going. It's not my time. And then you get to verse 11. And Jesus has arrived on the scene. And here's, here's what happens. But this is actually not arrival. He hasn't arrived yet. Listen, this is the conversation between him and the disciples. After saying these things, he said to them, that's the disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking rest in sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Okay, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. So Jesus here hints privately with the disciples what he's going to do. He says to them, he says, hey, guys, let's go on down to Bethany. Lazarus is asleep. I'm going to go down and wake him up. Now, what is Jesus saying to them? He's giving, what is he saying to them? He's trying to tell them what he's actually going to do. He's going to raise Lazarus from the grave. But they are thick-headed numbskulls sometimes. And that makes me feel really good. Because so am I sometimes. He tells them that, and they don't get it. As Lazarus is asleep, I'm going to wake him up. And the disciples are like, well, Jesus, do we have to walk all the way to Bethany just to wake him up from a nap? Won't he just wake up on his own? And Jesus finally says to them with an eye roll. Now, that's not in the text, but I'm sure it happened. I'm sure it happened. There was an eye roll in there somewhere. Guys, Lazarus is dead. He's dead. Let's go. Let's go. And, you know, these guys are thinking, well, this makes no sense at all, Jesus. We found out a couple of days ago that he was going to die and you went nowhere. Now you're telling us he's dead and now we're going to go. Doesn't make any sense. And Jesus says to them, the third head scratcher, he says to them, look, it's good for you. It's good for you. I'm glad that I wasn't there when Lazarus died because it's good for you that I wasn't there. It's good for you so that you might believe. Now, this is incredible. Jesus is saying, my dear friend that I love is dead, and I'm glad I wasn't around when it happened. This is the man who has healed a lot of people. Back in chapter 5, well, we haven't studied that yet, but you'll have to take my word for it. If you come next Sunday, you'll find out about it. He heals a paralytic. That was just a shameless plug for you to come back next week, by the way. He heals a paralyzed man. In chapter 9, John reports for us that Jesus has healed a man born blind. Jesus has proven time and time again that he can heal every sort of a disease. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, I'm glad I wasn't there when Lazarus was sick. I'm glad I wasn't there. It's good that I wasn't there. And I'm finding myself scratching my head. How is this good? He healed complete strangers. Surely if he had gotten there in time, he could have healed Lazarus and kept him from dying. How can Jesus say that it's a good thing that he wasn't there? Somehow, John tells us, the fact that Jesus wasn't there is going to help his disciples believe. Hmm. 
Verse 17. When Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. This is an important note. Um, This tells us that Lazarus was probably already dead by the time Jesus got the word. He gets there. Lazarus has been in the tomb four days. It's kind of a cultural note here that's that's inserted for us to understand. Because in the culture of the day, uh, it's, it's told that the Jews typically thought of the soul kind of hovering above the body upon death for about three days. And after three days, the soul goes on. And so Jesus has delayed just long enough to where when he shows up on the scene, everybody there has known that the three days is up. It's day number four. All hope of helping this dead man would have been thought to have been gone at this point. And so that's why we're told he's in the tomb four days. And Jesus arrives, verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. And Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. And so Jesus said to her, Martha, your brother will rise again. And she says to him, I know that he'll rise in the resurrection on the last day. This is an interesting conversation because Jesus arrives in the middle of this and Martha is devastated. No doubt, no doubt she is grieving deeply and no doubt what she says is what she has been thinking for four days. Lord Jesus, if you had just come, if you had been here, maybe Lazarus wouldn't be in the grave right now. Now, you know, some commentators look at this and they take it, the idea that Jesus is kind of getting a scolding from Martha. You know, why didn't you come? Why didn't you show up? But I, I, I don't get that sense. I think that, that there's a different issue here. I, I think Martha is just grieving. I think it's just kind of grief sort of mixed with an incomplete faith. Martha is saying to him, Oh, Jesus, I, I wish you'd been here. If you had just been here, if you'd just been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus, I, I've seen you heal people with, with worse things than what Lazarus had. I know if you had been here, I know if somehow you could have gotten here. He'd still be alive. It's just her grief speaking. But it's grief mixed with sort of an incomplete faith. And you say, why is it an incomplete faith? It's an incomplete faith because Martha, she fully believes that Jesus can do something about sickness. But apparently, she doesn't think that Jesus can do something about what? About death. Do you see it? Jesus, if you'd been here before he died, you could have done something about this. He'd be alive right now. But the insinuation is now he's been in the tomb four days. It's too late. You see, she had faith that Jesus could heal the sickness, but she wasn't believing that he could do something about death. She doesn't fully know who Jesus is. And she doesn't fully know what he has come to do. Do you see that? Do you see that? And Jesus tells her, he says, your brother will rise again. But like when he told the disciples that he's asleep and I'm going to wake him up, she doesn't get it. Oh, I know, Jesus, I know. I I, I know my Old Testament. I know that in the end, at the end of time, all of the dead are going to be raised to life. I know know my brother's going to be raised in the end. But Jesus wasn't talking about the end, was he? What was he talking about? A few minutes And here's even more of the irony that tells us something about Martha's faith. She believed that Jesus could heal sickness, but she wasn't sure that he could raise a dead man. She didn't believe that. However, she does believe that Jesus has the power to raise all the dead at the end. 
She's just having a hard time believing that Jesus can heal this dead man after four days. She doesn't know fully who Jesus is. Her faith is incomplete. In, in verse 25, we hit the climax of this whole thing that makes these head scratchers make sense. Jesus finally says to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall what? Shall never die. Do you believe this? He's coming at her in the area of faith. He's saying, Martha, you don't fully understand who I am and what I've come to do. I have come to do something about moments just exactly like this. You think I can heal sickness, but you don't think I can do anything about death. Martha, I am resurrection and I am life. You have in front of you the very embodiment of resurrection power. The power over death is staring you in the eyes. Martha was looking at the resurrection as an event. And Jesus is saying resurrection from the dead isn't an event. Resurrection is a person. And it's me. The one who's looking at you and talking to you. I am resurrection. Complete and full sovereign power over death resides in me. I have complete and full power over death any time. In fact, time is irrelevant. Whether it's the past or the present or way into the future, it doesn't matter. I'm sovereign over death. Do you know what Jesus was doing? Get this. He's glorifying himself to Martha. What does that mean? Well, we talked about what the glory of God was. What does it mean to glorify God? It means to expose, to make visible who he is, the fullness of who he is. Martha doesn't understand the fullness of who Jesus is. She doesn't get the whole picture. And so Jesus glorifies himself by showing her who he is and what he's come to do. By showing her his sovereignty over death. Not only can he deal with Lazarus' problem with death, he's saying, Martha, I can deal with anyone's. In fact, I've come for this very purpose, to destroy death. He's saying, I am the ultimate and final answer to the problem of sin and death. See me, Martha, for who I am and believe me. And if you do, physical graves will be completely irrelevant. Lazarus is yours or anyone else who believes. The grave will not matter anymore because I'm resurrection. And if you believe in me, you have the power over death. You see... When we understand that, all the head scratchers make sense. How is it that Jesus can say this illness does not lead to death when Lazarus dies? Because he's coming and what's he going to do? You know the rest of the story, right? He says, hey, Lazarus, get out of the tomb. And Lazarus walks right out because he's going to bring Lazarus back. But even that isn't the point because Lazarus is going to one day do what? He's going to get some other sickness or get hit by a spear or run over by a chair. I don't know. He's going to die some other way. And that time, he's going to be really dead. But Jesus is saying, listen, the illness doesn't lead to death because I've come to destroy death. And I'm going to make a way for Lazarus to live forever. 
I'm going to raise him physically right now for just a little while, but I've come for much more than that. You need to see that I've come to kill and destroy death altogether so that Lazarus, even though his body will once again die, he will live forever because I'm the resurrection and I have the power over death. So this makes sense. The whole point of this story was not Lazarus. And the whole point of the story was not a man who was dead coming out of the grave. The whole point of the story was the glory of God and the person of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Lazarus wasn't the point. Martha wasn't the point. Jesus was the point. Jesus comes into this scene and he does what he does for one purpose. And it's not to help Lazarus overcome his problem. It isn't to help Mary or Martha overcome their grief. He comes onto the scene to show Mary and Martha and Lazarus and everybody else who he is. The one who's come to destroy death. He's come to glorify himself. That's why Jesus said this illness isn't for death. This illness is that the Son of God might be glorified. That's what all this is about. The disciples didn't get it. And that helps us understand the second head scratcher too. How is it that Jesus can say it's loving for me because I love them? I'm delaying two days. Why is it loving for Jesus to not show up right at the very moment he finds out? Why is it loving for Jesus to delay two days and to let Lazarus die and to let Mary and Martha taste and experience pain and suffering and grief? Why is it loving It's loving because they all needed something more than what they wanted. What they wanted was what? What did they want? They wanted Lazarus back. But there was something they needed more than what they wanted. They needed to see the glory of Jesus Christ more than they needed Lazarus back. Jesus withheld from them what they wanted in order that he might give to them what they needed most. They wanted their brother back, but they needed to see the Son of God glorified through Lazarus' death. They needed to see that Jesus has total power over death. They needed to see that he has the power to grant eternal life. And the only way for them to see those things was for Jesus to delay and let Lazarus die and to let them grieve and for him to come onto the scene when there was no hope and raise this man from the dead. It's the only way. And so in the midst of their deep suffering, he comes And he shows himself in ways that they would have never seen any other way. John Piper says this. He says, Jesus does not mainly love us in this life by sparing us suffering and death. He mainly loves us by showing up and giving us himself and his glory. We tend to think that the love of God is manifest in our life when He delivers us out of our pain and our trouble and our grief and our sadness and our hurt and our situations. But Jesus is declaring to Martha and to us that sometimes Jesus is loving us most by letting us go through it and stay in it for a while. So that after we've gone through it for a while, He can come into the midst of it into the midst of our, of our grief or our sadness or our problem or our pain or our trouble and He can show us Himself in ways that we would never see any other way. Do you see that? 
this is what he's doing for Martha. It's what he's doing for Mary. He's letting them go through it so that he can show himself to them. And they'll see him in a way like they've never seen him before. And hopefully that in seeing his glory, they'll believe in him. Jesus says, because whoever believes in me, even though he dies, what happens? He'll live. It's loving for Jesus because what Jesus is doing is ultimately going to lead to their eternal life. And that's much bigger than a dead brother. And Jesus has the same, he has the same issue with the disciples. That's why he says, I'm glad I wasn't there when Lazarus was sick. He could because the disciples needed to believe too. They needed to see that too. They needed to understand that too. And so Jesus makes all this happen and then he validates what he's just said by actually towards the end of this thing, verse 44, verse 43, going to the tomb and crying out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And John simply says, The man who died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And this remarkable miracle takes place. This remarkable miracle that isn't even the biggest miracle that took place on that day. He simply walks to a tomb where a dead body has been for four days, and he just simply says, Lazarus, come out. And this dead man, whose carcass has been rotting for four days, stands up, 75 pounds of spices and wrapped up like a mummy probably, comes walking right out of his tomb. And everybody's amazed. And you notice that John doesn't tell us anything else about that event. Does it bug you? It bugs me. Why, what did Lazarus say? If this happened today, I mean, CNN would be there with him. Lazarus, what was it like to be in that grave for four days? What did you see? Was there a light? Was there... I mean, what did, what, I mean, he doesn't tell us anything. What did Lazarus say? We don't know what Lazarus said. How did the people react? We don't know how they reacted. What was the reunion like when Mary and Martha saw Lazarus and he came out? John doesn't tell us any of that. Why doesn't he tell us any of that? Because that wasn't the point of the story. John doesn't tell us this because it's about Lazarus. He tells us so that what happened in verse 45 would happen. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, they believed in him. Jesus glorified himself in that crowd. And there were a lot of people who saw him and they believed in him. And they embraced that promise that he said, if you will believe in me, whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet he'll live. And whoever lives and believes in me, he doesn't have to worry about a grave because it's simply a doorway into my eternal presence. People believed. That was the point. That Christ might be glorified. That He might be glorified as the sovereign God who has ultimate power over sin and death. And that people might be drawn and might believe Him. And after all, that's exactly why John wrote this whole gospel, isn't it? John chapter 20. We talk about this verse about every week. Verse 30. John says, Jesus did many other things, but these things I've written. Why? So that you might believe. And so the believing you might have death no, no, so that you might not have death, but have life. 
It's a remarkable story. And there's so much more that could be said about that story. We'll get to it when we study John chapter 11 more, more closely. But here's the bridge. This whole, why are we talking about that on Easter Sunday? Because what Jesus did with Lazarus is simply a preview of what he's going to do in a much bigger way just a matter of days later. Right? The raising of Lazarus from the dead was really less of a resurrection and more of a resuscitation, right? The old body that Lazarus had just kind of reanimated and came to life. Ultimately, that body's going to die again. But you and I know what's getting ready to happen in just a matter of days. Because John reports to us that there's an ultimate fulfillment. There's more to this story than just the, the, the idea that Lazarus is going to come out of a grave. Because he's telling us this is a preview. This is a preview. It's a disclosure of what Christ came to do to ultimately deal with the two enemies that humanity has always had since the Garden of Eden. What are the two enemies? Sin and death. And Jesus says, I'm sovereign over this. My raising of Lazarus is simply to show you who I am and what I've come to do. And what I've come to do, I'm about to do. And we're on the other side of history from this. We know what he was about to do. He was about to take on those two enemies, wasn't he? He takes on the first of those enemies, sin, at the cross. And he takes on the second one, death, in an empty tomb. And John simply gives us that. And we're not going to study it. I'm just going to read it. Jesus just simply ultimately fulfills his promise that he's going to provide a way for dead people to live forever by doing this. John chapter 20, excuse me, John chapter 19. Pilate took Jesus and he flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they arrayed him in a purple robe and they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. And Pilate parades him before the people down in chapter uh, verse 14. He says to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out away with him and they led him away. Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered him over to them to be crucified. And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. And there they crucified him. And John goes on to describe the scene at the cross. And you get to verse 30. And it says, when Jesus had received sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. It is finished. What's finished? What's finished at the cross? Jesus has destroyed that first enemy of humanity, sin. You see, the Bible tells us that when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, he did so not for sins that he committed, but for sins that you committed. And that I committed, and that Lazarus committed, and that Martha committed, and that his disciples committed. And Jesus goes to the cross and he gives his life, paying the price for our sin, enduring the full and complete wrath of God that was due for our sin. He endured it, he absorbed it, he took it on our behalf. 
Isaiah 53 tells us that this was going to happen. He was pierced for what? For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds we're healed. Or Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. You get it? He became our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Or Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And by his wounds we're healed. Or Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we've now been justified by his blood. Jesus goes to the cross and he faces one of the the dreadful enemies of humanity since since the Garden of Eden, this enemy of sin, and he pays the full price of our sin by sacrificing his perfect, sinless life. He endures the full wrath of God, and the result of all that is we are justified. That is, we are declared not guilty. Sin is no longer counted against us. Do you see that? Jesus died on the cross that your sins might not be counted against you. That this enemy who up to that point had had you in the target, that that enemy could be destroyed and no longer have a claim to your soul. That's why Jesus died. That you might be declared not guilty. Romans chapter 5 verse 19. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Who's he talking about? The garden, Adam. So, by one man's obedience, what? Many will be made righteous. Jesus undid on the cross what was done in the garden. He is the only one who could do it. The sinless, perfect Lamb of God shed His blood. And on the cross He said, it's finished, it's done. What was done in the garden is now undone. Sin no longer has dominion over my people. And not only that, he destroyed death, didn't he? By rising from the grave. You know, what's in, one of the interesting deals here when you study the Gospels is none of the Gospel writers describe for us the resurrection. You know that? We have a real description of the crucifixion, right? This happened and that happened and this happened. We have no description of the resurrection. Nowhere does it say, here's how it happened. All we have for the resurrection is a record that Jesus was put into a tomb and the guards are put in front of it and the next day people came out to to anoint his body and what did they find? The tomb is empty. We have no idea how it happened and what happened in between there. We have no idea. All we know is that the man who was dead is dead no more. We know that because angels report to the people who come there, hey, who are you looking for? In Matthew chapter 5, excuse me, Matthew 28. And they said, Jesus. And the angel said, he's not here, he's risen. See, we have a report of angels. They tell us what happened. And then Mary Magdalene is one of the ones who comes, we'll see as we study John's gospel. She turns around and Jesus appears to her and shows himself to be raised from the dead. And he shows himself to the disciples and he shows himself to over 500 people. We have enough information to know that the Jesus that went into that tomb, dead, came out alive. And what happened in between there, we don't know the details, but we do know one thing. He destroyed death. 
the second enemy that's plagued humanity since the garden was destroyed. Jesus faced death. He went into the waters of death and he walked out the other side alive. And Timothy said, Paul says it this way in 2 Timothy. He says, therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who did what? Say it with me who abolished death and brought life. Jesus killed death in that tomb and he walked out the other side alive. And in doing so, he purchased, he purchased our freedom. The two enemies that, were, that we became slaves to in the garden, sin and death, Christ faced both of them at the cross and in the tomb. And the first Christian sermon... Peter preaches about this to a crowd. And he says, you know that Jesus that you crucified? He says in verse 24 of Acts 2, chapter 2, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It wasn't possible for death to hold Jesus. Why? Because the power of death is sin. And when Christ lay in that tomb, sin had been paid for. It was impossible. So he describes Jesus in that tomb and the pain and the experience of his death as being like pangs of death. And ladies, you'll appreciate this. The word there is the word used to describe the pains and cramps a woman has in childbirth. Men, you probably don't get it. Ladies, you get it. What's the illustration? What's it like? Is it painful to give birth? Is it painful to give birth, ladies? Well, it depends on if you have, you know, good drugs going in you or not. Normally, it's painful. But the pain is only, what? Temporary. And the pain simply ushers in a far greater joy. Right? And he's saying, when Jesus died and went into the grave, it couldn't possibly hold him. It was just like a woman giving birth. There was some temporary pain, but that temporary pain just led to eternal bliss and joy. That's what it was like for Jesus to die. And he's saying by, by extension, that's what it's like for all those who believe in him to die. Death might be painful. It depends on how it shows up in your life. It might show up like cancer, or it might show up like some other disease, or it might show up like some painful, lengthy experience, but those are only the pains of death. They're only temporary pains that usher us into eternal joy because death could not hold Jesus and death cannot hold those who believe in Him because those who believe in Him, even though they die, what did He say would happen? Yet they'll live. They'll live. Remarkable, isn't it? Remarkable what Christ has done. Remarkable that the Son of God has shown us in such vivid terms what He's done. But the only way to have this eternal life, the only way to, 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 to live even though we die and to live in such a way that we actually never die is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Is to see Him in all of His glory and to believe Him. Whoever believes in Me, I'm the resurrection and the life. Even though He died. And he lives. And those who live and believe me, in reality, they might go through the pangs of death, but they never die. It just becomes a doorway into my eternal joy.
Well, that was complicated a bit, but it's clear. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that is to say you've never believed in Him. You've never put the full weight of your eternal destiny on Him and trusted Him to deal with that for you. If that's never happened in your life, then you still face two grave enemies for which you ought to be absolutely terrified. Sin for which you will account and your penalty, which will be your death. A far worse death than the physical one awaits. An eternal separation from God in a place called hell. It would be great for you on Easter Sunday this morning to see Jesus Christ for who He revealed Himself to Mary and Martha. The one who holds the power over death. The one who faced sin for you. The one who faced death for you and conquered both and now offers to you eternal life if you will simply believe on Him. Is there any reason that you would walk out of this place today afraid of death? Is there any reason you should walk out of this place today not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? The answer is no. There's no reason you should. There's no reason that you have to. You can conquer death, but only through Him. I am the resurrection and the life. Let me leave you with a quote by Warren Wearsby. Listen to what he says. While we thank God for what the Bible teaches, we realize that we're saved by the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and not by a doctrine written in a book. When we know Him by faith, we need not fear the shadow of death. When you're sick, you want a doctor, not a medical book or a formula. When you're being sued, you want a lawyer and not a law book. Likewise, when you face your last enemy, death... You want the Savior and not a doctrine written in a book. In the person of Jesus Christ, every doctrine is made personal. And when you belong to Him, you have all you ever will need in life, in death, in time, and in eternity. And He stands before you today saying, I'm the resurrection and the life. If you'll believe in me, Even though you die, you'll live. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are not just words on a page. You are not just doctrines that we believe. You are a living, breathing person. You are God in very flesh. God become man. You are the resurrection and the life. You've shown us that. You showed Martha. You showed Mary. You showed Lazarus by raising him from the dead. But on the cross and in the tomb, you've showed us all in a much more profound way. And Lord, we're just people. We're sinful people at that. We're people who, like Adam, knew what is right and we choose what is wrong. We're sinners whose sin has earned us eternal death. And we... To some degree, Lord, apart from you, are terrified at the prospect of that. Because we know somewhere deep down inside that one day we'll give an account to our Creator for our rebellion. And you've told us what the wages of that is. It's eternal death. But the glorious truth for this Easter Sunday is it doesn't have to be. Because you came... 
And you showed yourself to us as the God who is sovereign over death, who did for us what we could never do for ourselves. You faced our two greatest enemies, sin at the cross, and you conquered it. You faced our other great enemy, death at the grave, and you rose again. And you live and reign victorious right now. And you hold out the offer to anyone in this place, anyone in all of the human race who would hear it this morning. They'll just believe in you. They have nothing to fear. Death is defeated. Sin is eradicated. And eternal life awaits. I pray, O Lord Jesus, you would glorify yourself to someone in this place today. Let them see you like they've never seen you and understood you before. And that upon seeing, they would believe and have eternal life. Oh, do that for us today in Jesus' name. Amen.